what do you say to people who are experiencing trials and suffering? What do you say that doesn't sound trite or superficial or even somewhat Pollyanna? This, this must have been the challenge that faced the Apostle Peter as he dictated the letter that goes by his name, 1 Peter, in the New Testament. It's been said that the distinctive characteristic of the book is warmth. It, it appeals to the human heart because it's written out of the love of a pastor's heart to help people who are going through trials and who have more to come. The theme of this book is hope in the midst of severe trials. It's hope because of what awaits us in heaven, and it's hope of how God is going to use these things in our life in the present. Robert Moffat, a 19th century missionary and Bible translator, said, The key note is steady encouragement to endurance in conduct and innocence in character. And though the kinds of things that we're suffering or that we might suffer may well be different than that facing the readers here in the first century, there clearly is a message of encouragement to be drawn from its contents. And this is the book we're going to begin studying today for the next two months. The author of the letter identifies himself in the first verse as being Peter. Uh, we know a lot about Peter, don't we, from the gospel accounts. He was a fisherman. He's introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. Uh, he quickly becomes the leader of the Twelve. He's often out in front and sometimes acting as a spokesman for everybody. But you also remember that he failed the Lord stupendously after Jesus' arrest. And though he had said to the Lord that he would stand by him whatever came, he ran away just like the other disciples. And later, when he was asked about his association with Jesus, he even denied knowing him. That's pretty bad. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus restored Peter to the disciple-rabbi relationship that had been broken in his denial of the Lord. In fact, you can read about it in John 21. It's a very moving account of this restoration and Peter was given a job to do by Jesus. He was to feed Jesus' sheep. And accordingly, Peter became one of the leaders in the fledgling church in Jerusalem. He's front and center in the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. He's said to have died a martyr's death in 67 or 68 AD, being crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified as his Lord was. When you think about Peter, before Pentecost, he's impulsive, he's boastful, he's self-reliant. But afterwards, he's a stable, humble, devoted servant. The interesting thing is that Peter's basic temperament stayed the same. He was an energetic man of action. Uh, God simply took his temperament and harnessed it. The man who rashly cut off the servant's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane became a man of mature vision, who preached the gospel and who led the church. In one sense, isn't that the same that God wants to do in our lives today? 
Some of us are, are, are shy, others are outgoing. We're all different. Some are melancholy, others are sanguine. But God wants to take who we are, as we are, refine us, and then use us for his glory. Peter's a delightful character, and, and I suppose at least in part we're drawn to him because he is so real. He has feet of clay. And we all identify with him probably in some way, some aspect of his life, whether it's fear, whether it's acting before we think, whether it's speaking rashly, whether it's relying too much on ourselves, or even denying Christ in the sense of not sharing him when we have the opportunity. Or as Peter said, giving a defense, a reason for the hope that is within us. But here's the great thing about Peter. He grew up. Deeply wounded and flawed, he learned to trust Christ. And, and, and he developed this pastor's heart for the people that he led. And so this letter comes from this disciple. It comes from this apostle, this shepherd who took Jesus and his commission serious. So let's make our way to the book of 1 Peter to chapter 1, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1293. And let's get ready to dive in. First thing we want to notice is who are the recipients of this letter? To whom does he write? We see that in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, these places were all Roman provinces in the northeastern corner of Asia Minor, or what is modern-day Turkey. The recipients are believers in Jesus, but whether they're primarily Jewish or Gentiles, you know, there's been some disagreement about that among Bible scholars. Um, there certainly would have been Jewish believers included in the churches in this area, in these areas where, where Peter is writing, but I think the internal evidence probably points more to Gentiles, and, and here are some of the reasons why. First, just by Peter identifying himself that way. As Peter, it was a Greek name. Uh, Paul, as a fellow Jew, calls him Cephas or Cephas. Uh, his fellow Jews called him Simon Peter. The other thing you notice as you read through the letter, there's no mention of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. In chapter 1, verse 14, he speaks of the passions of your former ignorance. It really sounds more like Gentiles, doesn't it? Uh, in, in chapter 4, he writes this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It really sounds that they're a part of it. This is what they've come out of, this pagan background. We don't know exactly when the letter was written, probably somewhere between A.D. 64 and 67. Uh, it, it's helpful to know a bit about the history uh, of, of, of the time, you know, what's going on. On July 19, 64 A.D., the great fire of Rome broke out. Rome was a city of narrow streets and wooden structures, and so the fire spread rapidly. And it burned for three days and three nights. And then it stopped. And then it started again. 
The Roman people believed that Nero had started it himself because he wanted to rebuild the city. Uh, he uh, was even heard to express delight at the flames. Those who tried to extinguish the flames were hindered and people were seen restarting the fires. The Roman, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus says that in order to divert the charge from himself, Nero blamed Christians. They were good ones to blame. Christians were already under suspicion and, and slanderous things being said about them. For example, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, which to other people sounded a lot like cannibalism. Eating Christ's body, drinking his blood. They, they talked about the day when the world would be consumed with flames. So boy, are they an easy target. Nero has this easy scapegoat and horrible persecution followed. Now, whether this persecution has reached the readers of this letter, you know, we really don't know. Or is it other trials that they're facing? But any, any way you look at it, Peter notes that they're going through difficult times. Go to the text again. Notice what Peter says about those that would be reading his letters. He says they're elect exiles of the dispersion. The literal reading is to the elect strangers of the diaspora. If I can contemporize that just a little bit, when you think about today, there's a sense in which believers in Christ are in a diaspora. Strangers and sojourners in the world. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. So in a real sense, those who've come to know Christ are living in a strange land. It's a foreign land. We're, we're pilgrims. We're, we're sojourners passing through. It doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world. The scriptures never teach us to withdraw from the world, but it does mean that we see things in light of eternity. We see things differently because it goes through the prism, the filter of our eternal home, and that's how we then evaluate what's happening in this lifetime on earth. Notice that Peter goes on to say about these elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I tell you, we could camp here all day and not even begin to plumb the depths of those phrases that Peter has laid out. But here's to summarize it. Peter says that they were chosen by God, by his sovereignly setting his love upon them, and through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing how central the Holy Spirit is in Peter's writings, Paul's writings. Um, the Holy Spirit is involved in every aspect of the Christian life. It's the Spirit who first begins to draw us to Christ, to give us a longing to know God. It's the Spirit who convicts us of sin. Uh, it's the one who leads us to faith in Christ. It's the Spirit who gives us the assurance that we're forgiven. It's the Spirit who empowers us to live the Christian life. Everything that we need to do in living the Christian life is to be done in the realm or the sphere of the Spirit. And, and, and did you notice the purpose for which they were chosen? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, I think we got probably a pretty good handle on obedience, you know, what that is. But what is this sprinkling of blood? Why, why would Peter bring that in? Well, when you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see sprinkling with blood mentioned in three situations. 
In Leviticus 14, when a leper was healed, he or she was sprinkled with the blood of a bird as a symbol of cleansing. So you see the picture that he has there, that we who are believers in Christ are cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus. In Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8, Moses took oil and blood which was on the altar and he sprinkled it on Aaron and his sons as a symbol of setting them apart for service. They were to be set apart for special work. Uh, And then the third one that he happens to mention there comes from Exodus 24. This is when the book of the covenant was being read to the people. And they responded by pledging this, all the words what the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses took half of the blood of the, of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the altar and, he, and the other half he sprinkled on the people. It was a sprinkling for obedience. What a word picture, huh? I'm not sure I could get into this. But you see, when we think about it in a similar way, that when we come to faith in Christ and believe in Christ, we as believers have been cleansed. We've been set apart for service to God and to others. And we've been pledged to obedience. So you see, there is an application to us, even from that in the Old Testament. Peter concludes his salutation by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, it's easy to quickly read over those words. But but think what it would have meant to believers who are going through trials, who are suffering, who are in need of grace and peace. Think what an encouragement it was to be reminded of the fact that they'd been chosen by God. They'd been set apart and and to be used for his purposes. If you're going through a tough time right now, whatever it might be, would, would you take time to think about those first two verses even before we jump down to see the encouragement that Peter's going to give? Because if you've trusted in Christ, you've been chosen by him. You've been been set apart for his use, for his purposes, and you've been called to obedience by him. This This is part of this wonderful gift of God's grace that comes to us. And this is what he holds out to you through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Grace and peace, regardless of what you're going through right now. Now let's look at the opening paragraphs of the letter and then we'll go back and we'll, we'll just pick up some of the key ideas. Verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
concerning the salvation, the prophet who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is not a remote, unknown God to whom Peter refers, but this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has shown us what the Father is like. In the upper room to Philip, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So this God is someone who we can approach with childhood confidence. Uh, this merciful God has caused us to be born again. I'm wondering if Peter was reflecting on the conversation that Jesus had had with Nicodemus. You remember the religious ruler when he said to Nicodemus, Nick, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above. And don't you love it? Peter says that we've been born again or anew from above to a living hope. Listen, the pagan world was a world without hope. The Greek playwright Sophocles wrote, not to be born at all, that is the best fortune. The second best is as soon as one is born, with all speed to re return thither whence one has come. Isn't that a sad perspective of life? You know, it's basically what the French existentialists had said, life is meaningless. And in the pagan way of thinking, and in that pagan world, everything faded and decayed with only darkness. You know, there are a lot of people today with what's going on in our world, the doomsayers are convincing, you know, this is a, we're a place without hope. There is no hope. But you see, the thing that made Christians stand out, maybe as much or, or second only to their love, was their hope. Well, it was hope of the resurrection of Christ. It's not hope in the sense of, I sure hope such and such will happen, but it's hope in the sense of a secure, settled thing. When you see that word hope in the New Testament, when you read about biblical hope, it's guaranteed certainty. Let me say it again. Biblical hope is guaranteed certainty. And Christians have the certainty, the guaranteed certainty of their ultimate destiny. The Bible calls it eternal life. Look at what the Apostle John writes in his first letter, chapter 5. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It is know that you have. It's not hope that you have. It's not wish that you have. It is know that you have. Now, if that sounds like arrogance, that's just misunderstanding. It's not arrogance, it's certainty that God gives us for that. There's this, there's this definiteness of this knowledge. And that's why Peter says that God should be blessed. The word simply means to be eulogized or to be spoken well of. We eulogize God. We speak well of him because of that. We praise God because of this amazing work that he's done on our part. 
He's imparted to us hope. So even in the midst of trials and suffering, when times are difficult, even unbearable, we have hope. And we who know Christ should be known as people of hope, not always in the temporal. I'm not talking about, you know, some power of positive thinking that just fakes the real world, but I'm talking about in the eternal realm of the hope that we have in Christ. And Peter says this hope is because of the resurrection of Christ. Paul has that same thing in mind when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who fall fallen asleep. For as by a man, speaking of Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. And this hope is an inheritance that Peter says is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. David Helm, in his commentary on 1 Peter, makes the point that Peter can't tell us very much what it will be like, but he helps us by revealing what it is not like. Isn't that great? So look at that, what this, what this inheritance means and what it is. First, he says that it's imperishable. That simply means it's not able to be destroyed. He says that it is undefiled, which means that it's not polluted. It is unfading, which means it's not subject to decay. Think about that. This inheritance that God says is yours and mine cannot be destroyed. It's pure. It's undefiled. It's never going to tarnish. It's never going to decay. It's a glorious inheritance. The security of this promise is based upon the one who is guaranteeing this inheritance. And so Peter says that the believer is being protected by God's power. That's his part. Through faith, that's our part. And he uses a military word here for protect. It means that God stands guard over us all our days. It means that we are garrisoned by him. This is the promise that Jesus said when he said of believers in him, I give eternal life to them and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one shall snatch them out of the Father's hand. So with all of that being true, then, let's look again at these words of encouragement to believers that are in the midst of stress. If you are a person today who is under stress, whatever it is in your life, would you make these verses your own? Look at starting at verse 6. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. These believers to whom Paul's been writing you know, had, all, had always been slandered, had always been ridiculed, and now they're facing uh, present, if not probable, physical persecution. And Peter's telling them that, listen, you can stand anything. You can even greatly rejoice while you go through these trials, and that's all because of three things. First of all, because of what they could look forward to. 
They had an inheritance reserved in heaven, the hope of glory. Probably few of us here today know what it is to long for heaven. We have life too easy, don't we? Uh, but, but there are others in the world and throughout history that have known this longing. And in the midst of deep suffering, they know that there's something better that awaits them. And when all the trappings and all the attachment to this world are stripped away, there is yet for believers this hope, this great hope of what lies ahead. Another reason why they could rejoice was because their trials were temporary, even brief in the long scheme of things. And Peter says that their suffering would serve to refine them, to prove that their faith was genuine. Listen, the exertion and workout that athletes go through aren't meant to defeat them, but rather to strengthen them and to give them endurance. And that's why Paul would say in Romans 5, we rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Listen, God doesn't use trials and afflictions to take the strength out of us. He used it to put the strength into us. He uses it to encourage us, to build us up that we might be able to withstand whatever comes our way. The ultimate effect of difficulties in the life of one who entrusts themselves to God in those trials is to produce hope, is to remind us that this life isn't the ultimate. There's something better that still comes. Trials are going to come in every size, shape, and form, folks. But so does God's grace. There will never be a circumstance in your life where God will say, oops, there's not grace for that. Sorry. Not going to happen. There's a third reason why believers can endure trials. And that's because in the end, the genuineness of their faith will win praise and honor and glory from God and for God. Now, our faith will, will definitely result in praise and honor to God in the second coming of Christ. Uh, but that's all there. And so we endure what might be here for the greater coming. Uh, Paul has this incredible perspective when he writes to the Corinthians, and he says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now listen, I know it's not pleasant when you go through difficulties. It is not pleasant when you're suffering. It's not pleasant when you're dealing with situations in your life, in your family's life, that you would much rather not be enduring. Uh, but it is a fact of life, isn't it? But Paul says that these are momentary light afflictions that are producing in us an eternal weight of glory. What a perspective of hope. And what an encouragement to keep on keeping on. Someone once wrote, when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. And sometimes that's about all you can do. That's all you can see. That's all that's there for you. These believers, unlike Peter, had not had the privilege of being with Jesus physically. They'd not seen them with their physical eyes. 
but they had seen him through eyes of faith and had believed in him. They could rejoice in the midst of their sufferings because their faith made them certain of their future destiny and the well-being of their souls. You see, we're really included in that passage. That's us, isn't it? We're like those believers to whom Paul or Peter wrote. We've only seen with eyes of faith. We haven't seen him. And yet we can still believe in him and we can still rejoice with joy inexpressible. So let me go back to my question from the very beginning. What do you say to those who are experiencing trials and difficulties? Or what do you do during difficult times yourselves? Let me close by giving you three suggestions. Number one is ask for wisdom. Uh, if you're still in 1 Peter, just back up one book to the book of James. I want to read you something. I mean, this is very much almost a parallel passage in many ways. <clears throat> but it, it, it contains within this passage a, a, a verse that we pull out of context and we use for all kinds of things. But I want you to see First of all, it's proper interpretation where it falls. I'm in James chapter 1, verse 2, where James says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Okay, we pull that verse out and that's okay. It's good application. You need wisdom, ask God for wisdom because it says if we need wisdom, ask him. But do you see the context within which that falls? Count it all joy when you're going through various trials, knowing that they produce endurance in your life and steadfastness. And if you need, ask for wisdom. Ask God to get a, his perspective on these things. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to take you right out of the difficulty right away. But it is that he might help you to understand the perspective on how God can even use suffering in our lives and difficulties in our lives to conform us to his image. That we would trust in him and not in ourselves or others. That he, he drives us sometimes to him through these things. It's not because there's something wrong with us. It's because God wants to do something good within us. Ford Motor Company tests their cars not to show that they're going to fail. They do it to show the world that it meets all the specs and requirements. When God's at work in you with difficulties or trials, that's not to, to, to make you fail. It is to show you who's he showing you to. I think to the angels. I think to the world around you. He's demonstrating that your faith can be refined even as pure gold is in there. So ask for wisdom. Second, remember the future. Our feet are so firmly planted here in terra firma, sometimes we forget that there's something out there ahead of us. And the knowledge of that and the depth to which we see that and understand it and embrace it helps us then to understand and even accept what we're going through today. It helps to bring perspective. And then the last, just choose to believe God. Keep on keeping on in hope. This is our, that's the theme of the whole book that we're looking at. Keep on keeping on. That's what Peter's saying. Whatever you're going through, keep on keeping on. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep on in hope. And when we're tempted to lose heart and become discouraged because of our life circumstances, uh, would you just come to us in the Holy Spirit and whisper into our hearts and into our minds 
to keep on keeping on, as difficult as it is, that we might see our future hope, that that might shape the way that we see our present circumstances and, and, and make us even more effective in living our lives here on earth. But we thank you for the blessing of hope that we have, that we can be a hopeful people, that we can hold out hope to others around us in a hopeless world. So thank you for the blessed hope, the living hope through the resurrection of Christ. In his name I pray, amen.